0: Uh, guys, John 8, one of the memorable uh, stories in the New Testament, if you remember the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem especially, is trying to set Jesus up in a trap so they can get him. And so they've coerced, they've manipulated the situation in which they're going to catch a woman in the act of adultery. They do. They, they drag her through Jerusalem up to the Temple Mount where this young rabbi is because they're going to pit what they know is his merciful attitude and behavior against the law. And so they think they've got him, and there she is, and of course he upholds the law, uh, but he simply says, let the one without sin cast the first stone. And, and you see this surprising outcome that uh, Jesus, uh, God's Messiah, is uh, saving a person that looked really... Guilty. It would have been surprising to the folks around him. Later in what's called Passion Week, this is from Matthew 21, uh, verses 31 and 32. Jesus tells the chief priest and the religious Jewish leaders, he says, The tax collectors and prostitutes going to the kingdom of God before you. Uh, uh, people that, that look morally unclean and no doubt are, they're hearing the gospel and they're believing. You're hearing the gospel, you look. Uh, whitewashed. You look like a lovely thing on the outside, but really inside you're full of death. So there's this surprising turnaround when Jesus comes. Someone that would have been unexpected to receive kindness or grace from God, that's the one that is. You get this same thing continuing in Acts 10, and it's really the surprise about uh, who God is bringing into His family and His kingdom. And In Acts 10, the Holy Spirit had been given in Acts 2, and And the Jews have heard the gospel. Jesus is your Messiah. The Spirit's come down. Samaritans got the gospel in Acts 8. In Acts 10, Pete is uh, getting ready for lunch. He's at a seaside home. And and, uh, he goes up to pray on a rooftop. That was common in those days. It had been like our patio today. And while he's there, he has a vision. A sheet comes down from heaven. It's filled with unclean animals. Animals that the Jews knew we don't eat those. Those are unclean to us. Three times this happens. Three times God says, Pete, rise, kill, and eat. Three times Pete says, No way, Lord. Never eaten anything unclean. Three times God says to him, What I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And of course, this is all to set Peter up. This was more than about a diet. So some guys knock on the door downstairs. They say, hey, we're here to see Simon Peter. They're from Cornelius, up the road there, up the Mediterranean. And they say, you should come with us. Go back to Cornelius' house. And while they're down there, Cornelius, this Gentile centurion, he has called all his friends and his family. He's pulled them together into his house, and Simon Peter takes some of his buds, they go up, they meet them, they go into that house, and Peter just starts sharing the gospel. It's just, it's just, it's just a factual account. This is, you guys have probably heard, this is about Jesus, this, this, and this. And while he's still speaking, the text says, the Holy Spirit fell on them, They start praising God in new languages, just like it happened to the apostles. And Pete gets it. These Gentiles have just been brought into the kingdom of heaven. We had no expectation of that He is utterly taken off guard. And remember, under the new covenant, the Jews are still trying to figure out which end is up. What's the deal with the new covenant? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for Gentiles? Still figuring that out right on up through Acts 15. But you've got these scenarios in which the clearly guilty, as well as those who are considered unclean by Jews because they're outside the domain of the people of promise, those are the folks you see God pulling in to His family and His kingdom. And He's still doing that today, of course. So, in Acts 11, when Pete goes to Jerusalem, his law-keeping Jewish buddies are ticked. And they say to him, you went into the house of a Gentile. You ate with unclean Gentiles. What were you thinking? And this is what he says. He tells them the story. The story is repeated twice, I assume, for emphasis. It's validating that God was up to that. And he says this. He tells them what happened. And their conclusion, Acts eleven eighteen, is this. To the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was a surprise. They hadn't expected this. They hadn't looked for this. But he says to the Gentiles, to the unclean Gentiles also, God has given repentance that leads to life. You've got an adulterer spared death by Jesus. You've got an entire family and friends of formerly unclean Gentiles brought into God's family and declared clean. You think too about the early church You know, we talk about, we quote Paul all the time, but if you were a New Testament Jew living post resurrection and you heard that Saul of Tarsus, and this is of course part of the story of Acts, you heard that Saul of Tarsus is one of you now, the guy that was at Stephen stoning, he arrests Christians, he throws them in jail, you'd probably think, hold on, are you sure that's right? Are you sure that's the guy? Are we talking about the same guy? That guy is a believer in Jesus. And you remember in in Paul's story in Acts, people won't hang out with him because they don't believe it. It's too good to be true. We've got incredulity about who God would be willing to bring into His family and His kingdom. And of course, that happens all the way down today. But Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, uh, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And when he says that, he says, and I am the chief. It is interesting in that passage that when Paul says that, remember... He is uh, morally clean. He's kept the law all his life. He's not guilty of gross immorality or anything like that, like the gal in John 8. But he says of himself as a religious person, as a hypocrite, as a Christ rejector, and as someone who persecuted Jesus' family members, he saw that as the worst kind of sinner you could be because he says, I'm the foremost sinner we're in the series heroes and villains this morning and it'll feel a bit like a digression on the front end because in the story we've got this morning we've got a person who exemplifies christ-like faithfulness but we'll get to that as a secondary because we'll look at the story of transformation and salvation on the front end because this was a person this was a person that came to christ that no one would have expected absolutely unexpected And that story of initial faith and transformation is then what leads to faithfulness on her part. So this is going to be about Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, from Joshua 2. That's where we'll hang out. So if you remember, uh, last week we looked at Joshua. He took the baton from Moses. Moses got him from Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, 40 years, to the doorway of the land of promise. It's Joshua who's going to take them across. They haven't crossed the Jordan River yet when we take up this morning. The the main points I hope you get are these threefold. The first is this. uh, Faith to salvation is a gift from God. And, And this is part of what we'll treat this morning. When you and I are surprised at a particular person having come to faith, what is that surprise based on? So, I hear, so frankly, my wife heard Mike Halpin was reading the Bible and she can't believe it. Now, why couldn't she believe that? Because she knew something of what I was before, and based on what I was before, it was hard to believe that guy would be interested in the Bible. When we hear of someone's conversion, someone we think would never come to Christ, what is that incredulity based on? What's that based on? So that's one thing. And then related to faithfulness, what we'll see this morning is this gal that comes to faith against anyone's expectation, she is described immediately, and it's repeated in the New Testament twice, for faithfulness towards God's people. It's the reason she singled out in the New Testament. One of the reasons, one of the two key ones. The other thing is this, is that she is faithful to her family of origin, And so as far as our application when we go away this morning, I hope we're thinking about this. What does it look like for me to be faithful to those who are already in God's family? Do I have a mindset for that? Because many of us don't. That's one thing. And then the second one is, do I have a mindset, do I have a Christ-like faithfulness towards telling others they're in a city devoted to destruction? And if they stay there unchanged, They're going to lose their lives. They'll be destroyed in the judgment that comes. Or they could come into this house that's marked out by this bloody red color and they could be saved. So the applications for us this morning come into grips with our own mindset. Who is God willing to save and who is He not willing to save? Why are we surprised? And then two, faithfulness towards those in the family of God, faithfulness to those who are not yet in the family of God. We're in Joshua 2, and there's enough text, uh, verses uh, 1 through 24. Read in your Bible if you like. I'm in the ESV. That's page 178 if you use a pew Bible. And guys, I will skip through this a little bit uh, just for time's sake. So Israel's there, poised on the east side of the Jordan. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, that's the east side of the Jordan, as spies, saying, Go, view the land." Especially Jericho. Jericho's their first obstacle. You know, this mounded city, two walls. It's on the Jordan Plain Valley. It stands out. If you're on the east side, that's all you see. It's the first impediment to getting into the land flowing with milk and honey. So he says, especially Jericho. They went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, we know later Rahab's house is part of the outer city wall. So one reason these guys would probably have gone there is they get inside the city gate, they take a left or a right, whichever direction her house was. They don't have to go in the rest of the way in the city. It'd be ready access to get to her house. The other thing is this. As a prostitute, she interacts with a lot of people. And she would be a good source of information. So that's where they go. They go to Rahab the harlot's house. Verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Probably sent soldiers. It's like we want those guys. We've been told they come into your house. Let's bring them out. Rahab lies to the messengers, of course, sends them out on a bunny trail. Pick up at verse 8. Before the men lay down, the, the two spies there in her house on the rooftop, just like Peter had been, As She came up to them on the roof and she said to them, and there's some key language in this passage. She says first this, I know. I have specific knowledge about something. I've comprehended something. I know that, and here she uses God's proper name. She doesn't say God. She doesn't say El or Eloah or Elohim. She says that Yahweh, she calls God by His proper name, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. How does she know Yahweh has given the Jews the land? She's heard stories. We know that. She'll say that. But she's heard something about God's will and His Word, and she has already believed it. She believes that God is giving the Israelites that land. She says, I know Yahweh has given you the land that the fear of you has fallen upon us. All the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard, and when we hear this, faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 says, hearing the Word of God. She has heard what's been reported from the Jews. God's Word, transliterated perhaps, but God's Word and will nonetheless. We've heard how the Lord, Yahweh, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction, meaning wiped out entirely. Devoted to destruction meant They were under God's judgment. We don't take anything away. Everything here is for God. Verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And listen to this last sentence for Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath Yahweh is God. Guys, how does she know that? Because the spirit of God made it real to her this woman is saved at this point she is a believer in yahweh this is no different than genesis 15:6 when god speaks to abraham and it says all abraham did was he believed he heard god's word he believed and god says you're righteous that's already happened to this woman she's heard she knows and she believes this is a believer in the midst of jericho is that wild Verse 12, now then she says, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you don't tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Verse 18, when we come into the land, this will be at chapter 6, tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. If anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, this is going to be when the walls come down. When you see us here ready to attack the city, we need to see that cord, that red cord. If you go out during that time into the street, Uh, your blood's on your own head because the walls are coming down and we're coming in and no one is going to be spared outside that house. We'll be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood's on our head. Verse 21, she sent them away, they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now guys, Jews hearing this story for the first time, and hopefully you and I do too, when you hear this story, so let me put the elements together again. So they tell her, so you gather everybody into your house. All your household comes into one house. You don't go out into the street. You stay in that house. And that house is to be marked out by something that's blood red. And in this place where, that's devoted to destruction, when destruction comes, if you're in that house marked by red, you and everyone in the house is saved. What does that sound like? That's Passover, isn't it? That's Passover, exactly. Exactly. And who is in the place of the believing Jews now? Rahab and her family. It's the same story. And we're meant to see that. That just like God preserved the Jews in Egypt when the angel of death came over and the firstborn died, the place is devoted to destruction. Jericho and everyone in it is devoted to destruction. There's one place to be saved and one only. And Rahab the prostitute is in that place. This is her house. That's wild. Uh, verse 23, two men returned, went to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him everything that happened. So on the front end of this, um, what I want to address is simply the faith of Rahab, the salvation of Rahab at all. So I confess in this series, which I had not anticipated, I spent so much time in the Pentateuch and in Joshua, so I'm always ahead in my reading of the Scriptures, Guys, there's so much death. There's so much judgment. There's so much idolatry. It has been uh, difficult emotionally for me in these passages. And you get to this story in Joshua. And out of nowhere, if you're reading this for the first time, out of nowhere, you got this story of deliverance in a person that would be the last person in the world you would think of. Can you imagine the spies? We know she's a prostitute. And she's a Gentile and, frankly, gal, sorry, but she's a woman, which for the Jews, thank God I'm not a Gentile or a woman. That used to be a Jewish prayer. So she's the, she is down and out. She has no hope. She is, as Paul says, without God and without hope. And they show up and find out this gal is already a believer in Yahweh. Is that crazy? Do you think they expected that? There's no incredulity on their part read in the story, but it's there just like it's there for us this gal is safe this gal in the city devoted to destruction is already a believer and she and her household are all going to be saved i love this have you ever heard somebody come to christ and you knew them and you knew what they were like and you knew things they did and, and you hear they become a christian and your first thought is no way no way because we have a preconception about what kind of people might come to Christ, don't we? (laughs) Which is interesting, is it not? In the Scriptures, who are the people, New Testament especially, but actually throughout Old Testament as well, the, the people Jesus indicts the most severely, and Paul does too, are not prostitutes. They're not tax collectors. They're not Gentiles. They're religious people who go to church and look good on the outside and are absolutely dead within hypocrisy. They're the folks not coming into the kingdom, Jesus said. And here's this gal, all the strikes against her that you and I could count. And lo and behold, she comes to faith and she's a believer. And she, as you'll see, she becomes a member of the household of faith in Israel. Hebrews 11.31 says this, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. To her conversion... And sort of the surprise, not only the surprise for Rahab, but it was a surprise to the Jews to see Jesus exercise mercy on that woman. Or it was a surprise to the Jews to see people like Cornelius come to faith. To that surprise about who gets saved, let's talk about a couple of things. Because I think, uh, even as believers, even if we're in the Scripture routinely, I think that we still tend to, to hold certain kinds of preconceptions that don't serve us well when it comes to what God is up to. First, let me say this. Uh, We are, all of us, we are morally unclean apart from Christ before conversion. We're morally unclean and we are spiritually dead. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, now remember, he's writing to Gentiles who've come to faith. One, they are in the faith. They're in the church. But he says of them, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. So guys, how dead is dead? There's a movie that trades on this. It's a joke. I won't go into that. But how dead is dead? And how much energy and passion and uh, does a dead person bring? How dead is dead? You know, how much power do they have? What, what's, what's there? They're dead. They're really dead. You know, you go to John 11, and you got a story about a guy who's dead. He's really dead. He's four days dead. He's wrapped. He's laid in the tomb. And he stinks his sister say don't open that tomb because he stinks four days but God calls and what happens that dead man comes to life the dead the dead don't come to life on their own Jesus calls and the dead come to life so guys we are dead spiritually all of us are dead spiritually we're not only dead we are unclean unclean This wasn't true. Remember for the Jews, everything is about ceremonial cleanness. So we do things, we don't do things. We wear things, we don't wear things. We eat some things, we don't eat other things. But even in this group, you look in older New Testaments, Old Testament, Isaiah 64, verse 6. You know, Isaiah, the prince of the Old Testament prophets, the heights of Scripture in the Old Testament in Isaiah. When Isaiah is called to be a prophet in Isaiah 6, and he sees God as He is, you remember his response? He says, I'm unclean. Now, I'm a clean Jew, and I observe the law. But before God, I recognize you're clean, and I am not. And what's Isaiah say towards the end of his writing? Isaiah 64, 6. We are all become like one is unclean. All our righteous deeds, he says, are filthy. An emphasis here on filthy rags before God. That's the Jews. That's the clean version of humanity on earth. Absolutely filthy. You get into Zechariah chapter 3, and Zechariah the prophet sees Joshua the high priest stand before God in heaven. and, And the high priest, you know, if he's dressed on earth, he's got the clean garments on, he's got the ephod, he's got the turban. But Zechariah sees him before God in heaven, and what's his raiment look like? It's dirty. It's dirty. Guys, we are spiritually dead and without life. And we everything we present to God on our own is filth. It's filth. I say this for this reason. If we're all dead and we're all filthy, should any of us be surprised that God saves anyone else? He let us in. Do you think there's any limit to the person He won't let in? We're all filthy and we're all dead. We all need life and we all need a cleansing that only God can give. Your and my faithfulness, it always starts with God, and that's the next point. Even our faith to believe in Jesus for salvation is a gift. Listen to this from Ephesians 2, later, verses 8 through 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. This, faith, is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast We are His workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Even the faith to believe is a gift. So that this whole series is about uh, embracing the call to live out the Christ life within us in faithfulness like He did. Everything Jesus did was faithful. But friends, all all faithfulness of any sort towards God always starts as a grace gift from God Himself. And I love it. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. Remember the Corinthians are a very proud group. They think very highly of themselves and they want to be impressive to themselves and to others. And to that group, Paul says this. twenty six through 31 starting at verse 30. It says, he says to them, because of Him... Because of God, you're in Christ Jesus. Why? So that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And if you read Jeremiah 9, you'll see that all that second half of 1 Corinthians 1 is a, is a takeoff of Jeremiah 9. When the Jews are looking at something to boast in, you could boast in wisdom, strength, or wealth. That's the theme here. And in Jeremiah 9, God says, and you have nothing to boast in except Me. And that's what Paul takes up here. Our faithfulness, anything that we do in the name of Christ faithfully as Christ would, is always born initially of God's faith. God's faithfulness, not ours. The foundation of faithfulness in your life and mine as believers is predicated on God's gift of faith. His grace gift to us. It doesn't start with us. Okay, so, that's to the surprise of who's in and now I want to talk. I want to, the two points, the application points, hopefully, for what we take away and what we do in Christ like faithfulness is related to Rahab's two responses that are recorded in Joshua. Rahab's initial, the Christ like faithfulness that she's praised for in Scripture, Old and New Testament, was caring for God's people, was caring, was taking care of, was hiding those spies and send them safely again after she had spoken to them. See this in verses 4 through 6. Took the men, hid them. Remember, this is before the king's men have come. Rahab didn't know necessarily that the king's men would come. She didn't know who had seen these guys. She didn't know what would happen afterward. She's already hidden them. And she said to the king's soldiers, yeah, they came. I didn't know where they were from. The gate was about to be closed at dark. I sent them out. I don't know where the men went. Now, She's lying here, and we get this. And, and we'll cut her some slack, right? She's a Gentile. She didn't know the law. She's lived as an unclean Gentile all her life. She has a conscience like all of us, but we're going to cut her some slack, okay? God says nothing about the lie. What He praises is that she took care of His people, those two spies. She had brought them up on the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. So before she has a deal with these guys, She's already protected them. She's already hid them. She's already cared for them. There's no deal yet. Now, she wants, she wants to protect her family. That'll be the next point. But she doesn't have that yet. All she's done at this point is taken care of two guys that she knows belongs to Yahweh. These guys belong to Yahweh and Yahweh's group that are coming into the land. James 2.25, you can see here, is one of the two places in the New Testament. Rahab's mentioned for this specifically. Rahab's faith was demonstrated when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, this is striking, but it's more striking for this. James is a hard-headed New Testament prophet, right? And he writes this down. Whose company has he put her in? So chapter 2, it's a troubling passage for many people. I don't think it has to be. Uh, she's been talking about, James has been talking about faith, and faith is demonstrated by faithfulness, by faithful works. And so he says, Abraham was justified by works. And what James means is the faith God accredited to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, is seen in Genesis 22, many years later, when his action is faithfulness demonstrated, willing to offer Isaac. So in that robust company for the Jews, Abraham is the father of faith. He is the guy. And when James wants to point out faithfulness in action, who does he put with Abraham? He puts Rahab. Is that wild? He could have picked all these other people. And he picks Rahab the prostitute. And I think it's because sort of the epitome. Here's Abraham, the father of faith. We expect him to be faithful Here's a former prostitute and Gentile and woman from Jericho and her faith was legit too and you could see it demonstrated because she took care of God's people when they came into the land. Hebrews 11.31 says the same thing. By faith, she didn't perish because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So she's praised for faithfulness in protecting those who belong to Yahweh, God's people. Guys, and I'd say this, uh, faithfulness here, and not just here, but elsewhere, faithfulness begins in God's family and in God's house. Uh, We live in interesting times, and uh, you'll hear people say things like, I I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, it's Christians I can't stand. And I say, you're faithless. And there's people who say, "Uh, you know, I can't find a church that I really can plug into. And I got to say, well, you're faithless. That's because you're faithless. You know where I'm going? Faithfulness worked out in the life of this prostitute was immediate, and it was care for God's people. Faithfulness for you and I, it starts in God's family. If we're not loving, serving, praying for, supported, committed to, you name it, to other believers that we see, by the way, John talks about this, you can't love God you can't see if you don't love God's people that you can see. Faithfulness begins in God's household, in His family. It always starts there. We we can't cut ourselves out as superior to others because we're better Christians than they, and so we don't need to worry about them. Faithfulness starts in God's house. It starts with expressing God's love, His care for His people. That's exactly what you see in Rahab's case. The other thing is this. If we share the faithfulness of Rahab she's entirely new to the faith. This was her initial instinct. How could we not do that same thing that this sister in faith demonstrated immediately after conversion? And most of us have walked with the Lord many, many years. If we share her faith, certainly we can share her care for God's people. So, love, faithfulness begins in God's family. Here's the other thing which I love. So, so at, by way of application, are we caring for God's other children in the household of faith? Practically, in ways that matter to them. Are we doing that? The second one is this. She also demonstrates faithfulness to her family of origin. This is Joshua 2, verses 12 and 13. She says to the spy, Swear to me by Yahweh that as I've dealt kindly with you, you'll deal kindly with... And listen, she doesn't say with me. She doesn't say you'll take care of me. She never mentions herself in this. She says, with my father's house. And interestingly, guys, you know, in the American social fabric, we have the John Wayne attitude. You're probably John Wayne and so am I. And what that means is we're independent. We're free thinkers. We're mavericks. We stand on our own two feet. Well, that's a farce. It, it's, it's not only not true, it's only recently that people have thought like this at all. That mentality, through most of history, would have meant you're a slave because you don't belong to any group. She understands she's part of a group, her, her father's household. So she doesn't see herself as independent. She sees herself as connected to a group of people already. Now, we know she's connected to God's family, But she feels responsible for her father's household. And that's why she says, deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a sign that you'll save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to to them and deliver our lives from death. Isn't that interesting? Uh, What was good enough for her was good enough for them. She wanted them to have what she had. One of the first instincts of that person who's come to faith in Christ, I hope this is true of you historically or perhaps recently, you want to see others get the same thing you got. And this is negative and positive. We would be faithless to others if we didn't say that this earth is a city devoted to destruction and that judgment's coming, would we not? The judgment's coming. This earth is devoted to destruction. Jesus is going to come, he's going to put all rebellion down. There's a new heaven and a new earth, but it's only as this heaven and this earth have been consumed in fire, 2 Peter says. It's only after Peter's people in Revelation 20 have stood before the great white throne of judgment before Jesus Christ. So we're in a city devoted to destruction. Should we not tell other people this place is going down? That would be just minimally responsible, would it not? And especially those people that we already know. Have some care for, have some relationship, some history with and also not only can you escape destruction but you can have life better than you ever imagined i've shared my own testimony many times briefly i'll say this you know i was i was a good roman catholic boy i was a total pagan immorality drugs alcohol abuse everything you can think of i was doing it and guys i was miserable i was suicidal but I looked okay to a lot of people on the outside. And I hear the gospel. K-State Union, October 5, 1976. And I got saved. And guys, all I know is I'm starting to read my Bible because somebody told me to. There's a hint for you. Somebody told me to read the Bible. I started reading my Bible. And I'm reading Romans 12. And Romans 12 tells me in the paraphrase version I was given, I could be a new and different person. Guys, man, that was such an appeal. I didn't have to be my old, lost self. I could be a new and different person. And so when I still know nothing, I am at my parties, because I still don't get the big picture. I'm, I am quoting Romans to my friends at these parties, because that's how much I know. That's how far I've got. I couldn't keep it in. I couldn't keep it in. And when I saw my parents again, who were very religious, raised in church... much more religious than yours truly. I shared the same thing with them. I said, Mom and Dad, I'm a saint. (laughs) Why do you laugh like that? (laughs) I said, I'm a saint. You can imagine my mom. (laughs) I raised you. I know you. I said, I'm a saint. And I said, and if you don't trust Jesus, you're going to hell to my parents. Now, I I give my parents great grace and they were patient with me. I was a moron. You know, I was saying the right things, sort of, but in totally the wrong way. The point is this. If you come to Christ, do you not want to share that judgment's coming and there's a way out and you can have life better than you've ever imagined it before? And it's a gift. That's worth telling. Families of origin. Have we done that with the folks we grew up with called, called our friends? You know, what you'll find too generally is the longer you've been in the faith, the fewer people you know outside the faith. Unless you're intentionally plugged in in different areas, and by the way, this is a good thing to consider and pray about. Hobbies, places of employment, places where I volunteer, that I can be with people that don't know Christ yet so that I can share. Judgment's coming. There's a a way out. There's life better than you've known it. That's the second thing. And that's exactly what Rahab did Listen to this. This is from Joshua 6. The story, you know, it's a great story, which sort of we're passing over because we're focusing on Rahab. The the story stands on its own, though. So, Joshua 6, they've crossed the Jordan. They've marched around the city once for six days. Seventh day, they've marched around the city seven times. The priests have the trumpets. The Ark of the Covenant's there. They blow the trumpets. They, They give a great shout. The walls of the city, upper and lower walls, they fall out. The young men who'd been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire, everything in it, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. She's lived in Israel to this day. Isn't that interesting? When Joshua's being written, whether it's Joshua's pen or something, he says, oh, and by the way, she's still here. She got out safe, and here she is. She's still here today. Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out the land. Guys, this is uh, one one of the things that I take great comfort in is this. In the story of Noah and the ark, Noah and all his family are saved. And you get to this story. And Rahab and all her family are saved. And the story we started in Acts 10, Cornelius and all his family and his friends are saved. And later in Acts, Acts 16, the jailer in Philippi, the jailer and all his family, they're saved. Isn't that interesting? I love that. This is not always the case. And I know many of us in here are believers and everyone in our families aren't saved. But I would say this. I'd say continue to pray for opportunities to share the Gospel, to share the faith. Judgment's coming. There's a way out. You can have life better than you've ever seen it before. God did that then and He's still doing that Today as well. Well, Let's wind down. Uh, This isn't the the end of Rahab's story, is it? And I love this. I love this. Uh, So we're around 1400 B.C. here, period of the conquest, and you've you've got this unsaved, unmarried, unmarried, Gentile, Canaanite prostitute Rahab. She's brought into the people of God when she helps the spies demonstrates faithfulness to the spies. Later, in a book coming up shortly in the period of the Judges, you've got another great story of another unmarried Gentile woman being brought into the household of faith after she demonstrates faithfulness to her relative. That would be Ruth, of course. And where do those gals show up in the New Testament? Because they're together. They're line by line in the New Testament. So when Matthew the Apostle, when he wants to write about Jesus of Nazareth's bona fides. He really is the Messiah. He starts with the genealogy because we know some things about the Messiah. He's got to come from Abraham. He's got to be a Jew. He's got to come from the line of Judah because the kingship was promised to that tribe. And he's got to come from David. And so that's exactly what Matthew shows us. He starts with Abraham, the father of Isaac, father of Jacob, Judah, his brothers, etc., you get down though to the period of Joshua and we've got Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon's the father of Boaz and he's going to come up in the story of Ruth. And by the way, who is Boaz's mom? Why, well, that's Rahab. Wow, and then Boaz is the father of Obed. Who's his mom? Well, that's Ruth. And Obed's the father of Jesse, of David, from whom Jesus comes. That's all borne out. Is that wild? I love this. So when you see Rahab in heaven as you will, don't say Rahab the harlot. How's that for a start? Rahab the harlot. She is called that in the Bible, but that's what she was when she was unclean. But now she's, she's clean. She's in the household of faith. She's in heaven. So we could say uh, Rahab the first convert in Canaan. Or we could say uh, Rahab, uh, one of the mothers of Jesus. Uh, Rahab, who she married to, Salmon. But guys, that's God's still up to this. He's saving people that on the top of our minds, you and I might think, no hope for them. Well, based on what? Based on what? If God's willing to save wretches like me and you, there's probably a chance for others too, Right? So we want to display that kind of faithfulness. Faithfulness to those already in the family of God. It always starts there. And faithfulness to reach out to those who are without God and without hope now in a city doomed to destruction when grace and faith in Christ are available. We want to make sure that we're sharing that. Well, if you would, stand with me and let's let's read together. This is from 1 Corinthians 28. If you're part of the worship team, you're coming up now. First Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31 talks about God's grace and gift to us. Let's read that together. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord.